This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following podcast is part one of four of Professor Hanko's series, The Doctrine of Holy Scripture. I want, first of all, to thank the committee for arranging these classes once again. It's a pleasure for me to have this teaching opportunity in the summer months, and I enjoy very much discussing these important doctrinal matters with you in these times of fellowship around the Word of God. This year, the committee has chosen to address the subject of the doctrine of Scripture. This is an important doctrine for more reason than one. As you probably know by this time, the church ever since the time of Pentecost, and indeed already in the old dispensation, never had any problem with the question of the doctrine of Scripture. It always believed that Scripture was the Word of God, and although it may not have used the technical terms infallible or inerrant, it nevertheless believed always that the Word of God is authoritative and comes to us from God Himself. So far as I know, there was never a time in the whole history of the Church, of the true Church of Christ, where that doctrine was under, uh, under question. It is in recent times, however, that the doctrine has come under attack not only by liberal churches, but by very conservative churches as well. And it was because of this that it became necessary in the course of the development of doctrine by the Church of Jesus Christ to pay particular attention to the truth concerning the doctrine of Scripture and to define with greater precision and with greater care what the doctrine of Scripture was. Reformed theologians from the time of the Reformation have done all that. Beginning already with Luther, what the faithful have always believed concerning the Scriptures has undergone considerable development. That reminds me that I'd like to recommend to you a book which is not on the outlines. If you will take down the name and the author, you may be able to pick it up. It's out of print. You will have to look for it in a used bookstore or go on the internet and look at Amazon.com or one of the other used book dealers that are on the internet. The name of the book is Captive to the Word. Captive to the Word. It's a, a book about Luther's view of Scripture. It is, in my estimation, the very best summary of what Luther himself taught concerning the Word of God. It's accurate in every respect, and it's amazingly relevant to our modern day. The author of that book is an Anglican clergyman by the name of A, that's capital A, period, Skevington Wood. A. Skevington Wood, Captive to the Word. An excellent book. If you can add it to your library, 
it's worth purchasing. That is, of course, if you can find it. I think you can. I think you should be able to find it in some used book dealer. Nevertheless, the point I want to emphasize tonight and in the series of classes is the fact that although the churches have always held to a biblical doctrine concerning sacred scripture and have never departed from the truth of the infallible nature of scripture, in the ongoing development of that truth, the Protestant Reformed churches as a denomination through their leaders have contributed significantly to that doctrine of Scripture. There are elements to the doctrine of Scripture, important elements, what I consider to be indeed crucially important elements, which are unique to the Protestant Reformed churches, which no Reformed theologian prior to our own existence as Protestant Reformed churches have said about Scripture itself. That's of interest that's of significance, that's of importance. We have talked in the past in these classes, and it has often been mentioned from our pulpits, that our churches have been privileged by God to make significant contributions to the development of the truth in various areas of doctrine, not the least of which is the area of the doctrine of the covenant of grace. Nevertheless, it is true, too, that in connection with the doctrine of Scripture, the Protestant Reformed churches hold to various truths which you will find nowhere, nowhere in any circle, any ecclesiastical community, even those which hold to the truth of the infallibility of God's Word. Those are the elements to this doctrine of Scripture which I wish to emphasize in these classes. It's interesting that the whole impetus for the development of doctrine in the Protestant Reformed churches was the Common Grace Controversy of 1922 through 1924. That was true also of the doctrine of Scripture. Those of you who are acquainted with the history prior to 1922 are aware of the fact that Dr. Ralph Jansen, professor of Old Testament in Calvin Theological Seminary, was expelled from his office as professor because of his views of Scripture. He is often said to have denied the miracles. That's true. He is often said to have had some strange notions about, for example, how the scriptures teach a monotheism instead of the polytheism of the heathen. That's true, too. But if you read the committee report on the basis of which Jansen was condemned, you will discover that it was his view of scripture that was fundamental and basic. He had a faulty view of Scripture, and he defended his view. Indeed, the one defense which he employed was by appealing to the doctrine of common grace. In his condemnation at the Synod of 1922, the doctrine of common grace was not mentioned. 
And Jansen was condemned not for holding to a certain Kyperian common grace. Nevertheless, that was his ground for his views of Scripture. Significantly, the Christian Reformed Church in 1924 adopted the Kyperian view of common grace, as well as the doctrine of a general favor, favorable attitude of God to all expressed in the well-meant offer of the gospel. The result of it was that Jansen's views, after all, prevailed in the Christian Reformed Church. I mean with respect to the doctrine of Scripture. Although the Christian Reformed Church won the battle against heretical views of Scripture in 1922, it lost the war. There is no Reformed doctrine of Scripture left in the Christian Reformed Church, as is evident from the documents which their highest ecclesiastical assemblies have adopted. This adoption of wrong views of Scripture were sometimes consciously and even verbally based on common grace. And especially was that true of some of the heresies which the Christian Reformed Church approved of in its highest ecclesiastical assemblies, as well as some of the significant moral faults of which the Christian Reformed Church increasingly approves. Evolutionism, after all, and its approval by the Christian Reformed Church is based on a faulty interpretation of Genesis 1 through 11. That in turn, that faulty interpretation is based on a faulty view of Scripture. The synod which approved of theistic evolutionism appealed, in so many words, to the doctrine of common grace in support of its decision. Without going into this whole matter in detail, but simply to demonstrate that a faulty view of Scripture leads to the most terrible consequences. It was because of this faulty view of Scripture that the Christian Reformed Church approved of women in ecclesiastical office and is now struggling with ministers and even congregations within its fellowship who are openly advocating homosexual marriages. It all goes back to a faulty view of Scripture, which in turn goes back to that fundamental departure from the truth in the adoption of the three points of common grace. Undoubtedly, as was true of so many of the doctrinal distinctives of the Protestant Reformed churches, it was the emphasis of our fathers on the superbly beautiful and supremely biblical doctrine of the sovereignty and particularity of grace that led to the development of truth not only in the area of the covenant and the area of miracles, but also in the area of the doctrine of Scripture. I am convinced that our profound commitment to the truths of sovereign and particular grace 
have made it possible for the Protestant Reformed churches to make significant contributions to the doctrine of sacred scripture. Having said these things, I want to get on with the subject and I want to discuss with you tonight under the general theme of scripture's inspiration. First of all, what inspiration is. Secondly, what are the attributes of scripture? And finally, what is scripture's authority? Those three subtopics hang together. Our view of inspiration will determine our view of the attributes of Scripture and Scripture's authority for faith and life. I don't think it's necessary for us tonight to go into a detailed and extensive proof that Scripture is infallibly or inerrantly inspired. I word it that way deliberately because there are those in reform circles who have deliberately made a distinction between infallible and inerrant and have said with a remarkable and astonishing play on words that deceives many that while the Bible is indeed infallible, it is not inerrant. That is nonsense and the ploy of Satan to deceive the minds of the people of God. Infallibility and inerrancy mean the same thing and are in every respect synonymous. That scripture is infallible is due to its inspiration. The point that needs to be made first of all is this. And I make it with as much emphasis as I am capable of. The proof for the inspiration of Scripture lies in Scripture itself. That needs to be emphasized. The doctrine of Scripture belongs to the whole body of the Reformed faith. Whatever doctrine of the Reformed faith you may be speaking of, whether it's in the area of the doctrine of salvation or the doctrine of the church or the doctrine of Christ, all has its source in Scripture. If the doctrine is not taught in Scripture, it's a heresy. Scripture is the norm, the canon, the measuring rod, the fountain, of all the faith of the church. The same thing is true of the doctrine of Scripture itself. We must be very clear on that. I know of hardly any seminary in the United States of America, much less seminaries abroad, which are willing to concede that fundamental point even the most conservative of Bible students and the most conservative of commentaries will argue at great length in their introductions trying to prove the inspiration of Scripture on grounds other than Scripture itself. On rational grounds, 
on the grounds of the history of the church, on the grounds of the consensus of the church from the apostolic era to today, on all kinds of other grounds, including those of external testimonies with regard to Scripture, let it be understood at the very outset, and I'm not sure this is entirely clear to you, nor the importance of it properly underscored, but let it be understood beyond any doubt at the outset, the doctrine of Scripture is a doctrine because it is taught in the Word of God. That's the only reason. When other students of Scripture want to appeal to rational arguments, they may come out to the same conclusion that the Scriptures are indeed divinely inspired. But their arguments are totally beside the point and of no significance or value to the church. The church maintains the doctrine of Scripture on the basis of Scripture's own teaching. Now, we have been criticized for that, criticized severely, criticized as argu arguing on wrong logical principles. I don't care a snap about that. I don't even want to talk about it tonight. Maybe next week, the Lord willing, when we talk about attacks on Scripture, we can talk about what is sometimes called Scripture's self-authentication, that is, Scripture's own testimony concerning the fact that it is God-inspired. I'm not going to bother with it tonight, arguing the case, that is. We are proceeding on the assumption that our only basis for the doctrine of Scripture is Scripture. And to that I want briefly to call your attention. Our Belgic Confession, or Confession of Faith, although it is speaking of the authority of Scripture, nevertheless speaks of the fact that Scripture is authoritative because it is without error. And the proof of the authority of Scripture lies nowhere else but in Scripture itself, sealed on the hearts of the believer by the work of the Holy Spirit. Let me read just a brief uh, section from the Belgic Confession so that we may have that clearly before our minds. I refer to Article 5. Maybe we can read the whole article. It's not that long. The title of which is, From Whence the Holy Scriptures Derive Their Dignity and Authority. That is, how are the Scriptures to be considered the Word of God, and on what basis are they considered to be the Word of God? We receive all these books mentioned in Article 4, and these only as holy and canonical, notice, holy, that's inerrant, infallible, for the regulation, foundation, and confirmation of our faith, believing without any doubt, all things contained in them. 
not so much because the church receives and approves them as such, and we might add, not because convincing rational arguments have been raised in defense of inspiration, not because it is the consensus of believers since the time of Pentecost, none of those reasons, but this reason alone, more especially because the Holy Ghost witnesseth in our hearts that they are from God, whereof they carry the evidence in themselves. That's a crucially important article. They carry the evidence in themselves, the proof for their authority rests in the scriptures themselves. The Belgian Confession does not appeal to one or two texts. There are two classical passages that we're going to look at in just a moment. But I want to call your attention to the fact that the Belgian Confession says, the scriptures carry the evidence that they are of God in themselves, in every part of them, that is. You cannot read a single page in the Bible without being confronted on the page of Scripture itself with the proof that this is divinely inspired. Some of the outstanding aspects of that proof lies in these areas. In the first place, how many times did not the prophets themselves, beginning already with Moses, speak in such a way that their prophecies made no distinction between themselves and God. God spoke, literally, I, Jehovah, say to you, Jeremiah says. So powerfully is that the case that the personality of the prophet disappears. And although the word itself came to Israel through the lips of the prophet, he wasn't speaking. God himself was speaking in the first person. So powerfully that the prophet simply became, if I may use an expression which would make the hair of Bible critics stand on end, the prophet was little more than a megaphone pressed to the lips of God, through which God spoke to his people. The prophets were conscious of that. The people were conscious of that. That's because of the fact that the very word prophet in the Hebrew means, literally, one who boils over. That is, he is so filled with the Word of God and so wrought up by it, if I may use that expression, as a pot of water on a stove, that the Word of God in him, which is placed there entirely apart from his control, comes pouring out in an unstoppable flood apart frequently from his own will. 
He simply boils over with the Word of God by powers that are greater than anything he possesses. The prophets were so conscious of that, that in 1 Peter 1, the passage which our chairman read together, you have a striking text which is almost the strongest proof for the fact that Scripture is God's Word than any other text in the Bible. In 1 Peter 1, you read this, beginning with verse 10. Of which salvation, that is the salvation of your souls, mentioned in verse 9, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you. In other words, the prophets were so conscious of the fact that their writings were inspired by God that they studied their own writings in an effort to understand fully what those writings meant because they were aware of the fact that they were not the authors of those writings. I don't know how, any, how other people that write for the Standard Bear are, but once that article of mine is into the editor, I can't stand to look at that article again. There's nothing in it I care to read. There's nothing in it that interests me any longer. It's out of my hands. It's on the way to being published. For me, to read that article over is unbearable. And that's because I know everything that's in there. I wrote it. The prophets weren't that way by any means. They wrote books. Obadiah wrote the book of Obadiah. Habakkuk wrote the book of Habakkuk. And when they were all finished writing it, they sat down just as you and I sit down with it and pour over it and study it and read it again and again and again in the light of all the books that were extant in an effort to understand, mind you, what they themselves had written because they didn't understand it any better than you and I understand it until they had studied it and carefully perused it and weighed it in the light of the rest of Scripture. That's what 1 Peter is saying there. Can you imagine a stronger proof for the fact that the Scriptures are divinely inspired than that? Nevertheless, there are two texts which are classics, and I want to call your attention briefly to them, that you may see some of the elements involved in these two classic passages. The first, as you know, is in 2 Timothy 3, verses 15, 16, and 17. I'd like to have you look at that passage and follow it with me, and let me call your attention to a few elements in it. 
Paul is writing to Timothy and admonishing him to continue in the things which he had learned and had been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. When his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice taught Timothy to read, they used the Scriptures as a textbook. He learned his reading from the Scriptures. And then Paul makes this statement about the Scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Scriptures? Scriptures have that kind of power? The Scriptures themselves are able to make wise unto salvation? There isn't any other power on the face of the earth that's able to do that. How so? Why is it that the Scriptures pack in themselves the power to make wise unto salvation. This is the reason. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's the reason. Now notice the following elements here. In the first place, the Apostle Paul is talking to Timothy about the written Scriptures. Not here the preaching but the written scriptures from which he was taught as a child and from which book he learned to read and to spell. Concerning those scriptures, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy that they are not only able to make thee wise unto salvation, but that that salvation is through faith which is in Christ Jesus. That is, that faith which the Scriptures work as a part of salvation have the power to save because they bring to one Christ Himself. That's what the Apostle is saying. That's an amazing and astonishing statement. When we read the Scriptures, we come face to face with Christ. Oh, I know, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we see Him in a glass darkly. Nevertheless, we see Him. We see Christ. Notice in the second place that by all Scripture, the Apostle Paul does not merely mean, or does not only mean, the whole of Scripture, but he means every solitary part of Scripture. No single element of Scripture omitted. You can translate that if you wish. It doesn't make any difference as far as the meaning is concerned. But you can translate that. Every bit of Scripture is given by inspiration of God. In the third place, notice that 
the verb there is passive. Every scripture is given. That is, it's given as a gift. Not one of those whom God used to write the scriptures can ever be called authors. Not even secondary authors. Whatever they wrote, they were given. In the fourth place, notice that that gift came by the inspiration of God. Literally, the text reads, as you know, is given because it is God-breathed. Now, the breath of God is another name for the Holy Spirit. That in itself is something worth pondering, but we won't take the time to do that tonight. God breathed. And when he breathed, that breath was the Holy Spirit. He breathed into the heart and into the arteries and into the mind and into the will and into the fingertips of the men whom he chose to write the Scriptures. And when his breath pervaded the whole of their being, the Holy Spirit pervaded their being because the Holy Spirit is God's breath. And so everything, thought, desire, movement of the hands and fingers over the paper was all caused, that's not too strong a word, caused by the Holy Spirit. In that way, the scriptures came into existence. Finally, because that was the case, says the apostle, those scriptures are holy and are profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. I tell you, that's a powerful passage. Second passage, the classical passage, is in 2 Peter 1. I ask you to look briefly at that with me. 2 Peter 1. Last part of the chapter, really the whole idea begins with verse 15. The apostle wants the churches to which he writes to remember something. And so he's going to tell them about what he wants them to remember. He wants them to remember that the apostles preached to them the power and the glory of the coming of the Lord Jesus. That the Lord was coming again, 
in power and in glory. He wants them to remember that, and he devotes the epistle to that. He says, I want you to know that what I now call to your memory is something which I can affirm to be true. And I can affirm that to be true, says the apostle, because I and two of my fellow disciples, namely John and James, saw it. We were eyewitnesses of the power and glory of the Lord's coming, because we were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration when he was transfigured before our eyes with the glory with which he shall come again at the end of time. We were eyewitnesses. What better proof can you have than that? The testimony of an eyewitness will stand up in any court of law as being the truth. Nevertheless, says Peter, nevertheless, even though the testimony of an eyewitness is almost indubitable proof, I have yet stronger proof to offer you than that of an eyewitness. And that stronger proof is the testimony of Scripture itself. Verse 19, we have also a more sure Word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn. That is the day of Christ's coming, and the day star arise in your hearts. The prophecy of the scriptures is stronger proof of the Lord's coming and even that of an eyewitness. How can that be? How can a mere written document be stronger proof than that of an eyewitness? The answer to that question is this, says Peter, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. That is, there is no single prophecy in the whole of the Word of God which is the private opinion of one of the men who wrote it. Not one part. Today, you know, even in reform circles, that is mockingly denied. Why are women allowed into ecclesiastical offices when it is as clear as it can possibly be in any written word that Paul said this is not to be permitted in the church. Well, they say the answer to that problem is simply this. Paul was expressing his own opinion. He didn't like women very well. That's why he never married. And he's expressing his own private opinion for whatever reason. Maybe there were cultural reasons in addition to that. But it's Paul's own personal opinion and need not be of any concern to us. No prophecy of the Scripture contains any private opinion. And here come these learned, supposedly learned students of Scripture who say, this is the private opinion of Paul. 
How is it possible to contradict the scriptures so completely? I, for the life of me, do not know. That isn't how scripture came into existence, not in any part of it. How then? This is how prophecy came into existence. First of all, negatively, prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. The will of man wasn't involved. The will of man was not a factor. The will of man did not play a role. How then? Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now that's a commentary on 2 Timothy 3. This is what it means that these men had the Spirit in them, that God breathed the Scriptures through men. They spake. They were holy men, that first of all, who were preserved from error by the Spirit, and they spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The figure there is powerful. The figure there is of a ship that sailed the Mediterranean and that had as its only power of locomotion the wind that filled the sails and blew it across the surface of the water. That's how these men spoke. They were moved by the Holy Spirit who blew in them and who carried them along, not by their own will. Their own will wasn't a factor. But who so filled them and permeated the whole of their being that by a power greater than themselves, irresistible, they wrote not what they wanted, but what God gave them to write. Those passages are the proof for the infallibility, the infallible inspiration of Scripture. Now, I want to make a few comments of, about that very briefly. This is where the contribution of the Protestant Reformed churches enters in. It has been customary in Reformed theology, and you may read an outstanding illustration of that in the dogmatics of Hermann Bavinck, that if one wants to be complete in his doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, one has to speak of Scripture containing both a divine and a human element. The divine element is the infallible inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and the human element is that undeniable characteristic of Scripture that each of the men whom God used to write the Scriptures wrote in such a way that his own talents, his own circumstances of birth and upbringing and education and time of history in which he lived come to the surface. Only David could write Psalm 23. He cared for his father's sheep. Only Isaiah, the, the great poet prophet, 
could write Isaiah 53. Amos never could. He herded oxen. He was coarse. And perhaps even somewhat uneducated. Only Paul could write the close, careful argumentation of Romans. He was that kind of a man who was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Only Moses could be a lawgiver because he was trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. The personality of the man whom God used to write the scriptures jumps out at you. So it is said. It's a factor of scripture with which we have to reckon. It's the human element in scripture. I don't know how many times in the course of my education, both in grade school, high school, and college, that it was drilled into our heads, hammered home again and again and again and again, that unless you allow for a human element in Scripture, you do not do justice to the Scripture. And mockingly, any theory of inspiration or doctrine of inspiration which did not take the human element into account was called the typewriter theory of inspiration, or the secretarial theory of inspiration, as if God simply dictated. And the men functioned as secretaries. Indeed, those who deny the human elements so-called in Scripture are even charged with serious heresies, among them the heresy of docetism, which denied an ancient heresy in the church which denied the reality of Christ's human nature. I am saying tonight, and let it be clearly understood by you all, the scriptures have no human element. Let me say it again, so that you know what I'm saying. There is no human element in Scripture. They are throughout divine. If I may anticipate just momentarily what we're going to talk about in some detail next week, it is precisely this human element so-called unto which men latch, and which becomes the foundation for all their attacks which they make against the sacred and infallible character of Holy Writ. You ask the question, how then do you explain the fact that David is the poet, Moses is the lawgiver, was not that in perfect keeping with all the circumstances of their life and with all the characteristics of their own personality? Oh, there isn't a shadow of doubt about that at all. And in fact, one of the great beauties of sacred scripture is that God used such a variety of men to write his sacred word. 
each with his own gifts. How then can I say that Scripture has no human element if David's personality is laid bare on the surface of the Psalms which he penned as the sweet singer of Israel? This is how. From all eternity, before the foundations of the world, when God conceived of the salvation of his church, he conceived of the salvation of his church in Christ, by means of the sacred scriptures, which would be the record of his revelation, the revelation of the gospel of salvation in his Son. He conceived of the scriptures as a whole. He conceived of the scriptures in their entirety, each part of scripture with its own place, so that together they formed a unity. He conceived and prepared in his eternal counsel how those scriptures would come into existence. And in order to accomplish his purpose in bringing these scriptures into existence, he determined sovereignly from all eternity every single one whom he would use to write in that sacred book his own preordained part. In preparation for the writing of that part, God, by his eternal plan and in his sovereign execution of that plan in providence, prepared each author. From the moment of birth, for the great work which God had determined for him from all eternity. Each with his gifts, each born at the proper time, each trained in the way that God wanted him to be trained, each qualified for his own particular task, each living in his own cultural situation, if you will, at a crucial point in Israel's history, and each, finally, prepared by God through the spiritual operation of the Holy Spirit. What is left of a human element, then, if you read that that excellent book by Gordon Clark, God's Hammer. And you will discover that in that book, Gordon Clark, and I don't want you to think I'm a fan of his because I take violent objection to some of his thinking. Nevertheless, in that book, Gordon Clark scornfully dismisses the charge of the so-called typewriter theory and says... If only men would understand once and lay hold on the doctrines of predestination and providence, there would be no problems in understanding how the Word of God came into existence in human form in the remarkable way in which it did through men whom God used and that it still is in its entirety God's work. There are some things about this that we're going to have to wait for until next time, I fear, but I guess I can best make this point by telling you a bit of history in my own experience. In the late 50s, 
In the late 1950s, shortly after I was installed into the ministry of the gospel here in Hope Church, not in this building, but Hope Congregation, a letter came to the Synod, I forget the exact year, maybe it was around 1958, 1959, from an ad hoc committee that had been formed for the purposes of preparing a new translation of the Bible. And it was the business of this ad hoc committee to write to many different denominations and ask these denominations if they would cooperate in an endeavor to prepare a new translation. Our churches were included on that list and a letter duly came to our synod and our synod said to respond to this committee, yes, we were interested in cooperating on a new translation and we would accordingly appoint a committee to be a part of the committee of the whole that would make preparations for a new translation. After having received that letter, the ad hoc committee, which was in charge of making the preliminary preparations, sent to our committee, of which I was a member, a long questionnaire to fill out. And that questionnaire was intended to ascertain what our views concerning the principles of Bible translation were. We worked on that committee, uh, on that questionnaire at great length, but it soon became apparent to us and the other members of the committee, who, if I recall correctly, were Reverend Herman Hooksma and Professor Homer Hooksma, soon became apparent to our committee that the entire questionnaire was geared to a whole theory of, tra uh, of translation with which we did not agree, the so-called theory of dynamic equivalence. I'm not going to go into what that means now, but we'll do that when we get to translation. And the result of it was that they suggested very strongly in the questionnaire that they were following principles of translation, which considered many of the small words, so to speak, in the Bible to be mere rhetorical devices that did not necessarily have to be translated. Words like and and but and if and so on and so forth. Conjunctions particularly and shades of difference in meaning between various words as for example the fact that the Bible has two words for love. That those were mere literary devices and that the translators need not pay attention to them. At last, the committee of which I was a part said, what are we going to do with this? We can't do anything with this. So we decided we would send them a letter and we would say to them, we believe in verbal inspiration. That is, if you don't know what that means, we didn't put it that way. If you don't know what that means, that means that every word 
is inspired by the Holy Spirit. We may not play games with the words of the Holy Spirit and call them literary devices. In other words, we do not agree with the principle of dynamic equivalence. We believe in verbal inspiration. The result was that we never heard another word from that committee. And the work of translation went on without us and resulted in the NIV, the New International Version of the Bible. To this day, I am thankful beyond description that we didn't have a part in that wretched piece of work. But in any case, that illustrates the point, you see, the point that verbal inspiration means exactly that. Every word, what Jesus calls every jot and tittle. You know, the Hebrew had these jots and tittles. The word I was like that. And the word, I guess the equivalent would be our W was like that. And sometimes in a consonant, the consonant of a B, they would put a little dot. That meant something different. Jesus says every jot and every tittle is a part of the law. Not one jot or one tittle of the law will pass away. Not one. Every little curlicue is there by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, another true story by which I hope to make the point I want to make. And to me, it's uniquely Protestant Reformed and yet crucially important for the church. A number of years ago, there was a bitter, bitter fight going on in evangelical circles over the infallibility of Scripture. It was in all of the major evangelical seminaries, such as, for example, Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. At about that time, a man who was at that time editor of Christianity Today, Harold Inzel, wrote a book, the title of which was The Battle for the Bible. Maybe some of you have read it, maybe some of you are acquainted with it. Good book, in which he exposed all the corrupt teachings that were going on in evangelical seminaries because they were denying the doctrines of infallibility. And he said, once again we have to fight the battle for the Bible. It seems, he said, like every 20 years or so we have to fight the battle for the Bible. I thought to myself, I have to write him. So I wrote him a letter. I said to him, I don't remember how I put it. I was as courteous as I could be. Don't you think perhaps the reason why every 20 years or so you have to fight the battle for the Bible all over again in evangelical circles is that evangelicalism is fundamentally Arminianism? And I explained what I meant by that in the letter. 
And I said, it is my judgment that if the Arminianism that is rampant in evangelical circles would be abandoned, and the evangelical churches would return to the doctrines of sovereign and particular grace, there wouldn't be any battle for the Bible. There wouldn't be any need for it. I believe that with all my heart. The Bible is an integral part of the work of salvation. The Bible is, if I may put it that way, absolutely critical for the work of salvation. So much so that there wouldn't be any salvation were it not for the Bible. All of the work of the Spirit hinges on the Scriptures. Spirit doesn't work apart from the Scriptures. That's mysticism. The Spirit binds Himself so to the sacred Scriptures that He will not, He refuses to do one thing apart from the Scriptures. If there are no Scriptures, the Spirit can't and won't work. Now, this is my point. And this was my point to Mr. Linzel. The work of salvation is the sovereign work of God. Arminianism is a plague out of hell. It's a lie of Satan that is absolutely destructive of all the truth of Scripture and is incipient modernism that will end in a false liberal church. Why? Because it contributes part of salvation to the work of man. That's the human element in salvation? All right, then you've got to have a human element in Scripture too, you see. The two go hand in hand. And you can never divorce the one from the other. If the Scriptures are a part of God's work of salvation, the Scriptures are God's work, and man doesn't have a single thing to do with them. Because salvation is by grace. And that, I think, is exactly what drove our spiritual fathers who were so insistent on the truths of sovereign and particular grace to say, look, this touches on the doctrine of Scripture, that God is sovereign in all his works. The one means he is given for salvation is his work too, because if you ascribe a human element to Scripture, you ascribe a human element to salvation. And what in all God's world is going to prevent you from expanding and making that human element broader and broader and broader until you have finally reduced man, uh, God, to one who waits upon the will of sovereign man? In other words, I'm saying this. I don't know where else you're going to find this. This is, as far as I can tell, Distinctively Protestant reform. If you want to maintain the truth of an infallible Bible, then you must maintain the truth of sovereign grace, 
which means with regard to Scripture, that Scripture is God's work, and that in it is to be found no human element. And that's the way I want, to be, I want it to be. There's one thing you and I don't need. It's a Bible that's partly man's work. We can read the daily newspaper and Time magazine and the millions of books that are produced by human authors to find what humans want to say. But I want for my hopeless and despairing life what Peter calls in 2 Peter 1, a light that shines in a dark place. The only light there is in that world of sin. That light shines from heaven. You won't find it here in this world of sin unless you believe in common grace. Then all of a sudden there are lights all over the place beginning with the heathen philosophy. But we know that, that is darkness too. But what is of man is darkness. The light that shines in a dark place is this sure word of prophecy that God gave us. When we walk in the light of that word, we walk in light. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.